Thank you, Tim, friends. Good morning to everyone online. Hello, great to be with you. My name is Pete Stedman, Senior Minister here in the West. You know, I, I know everyone at this church. It's part of my condition. I can't help it. I just know everyone. But I look across the room this morning, I think, I don't know them, I don't know them, I don't know them, I don't know them. And so to them, to you who are new, it is so good to have you here. We trust that you feel welcome. To our family, to the regulars, man, it's good to see you back. Um, great to start the year off with you today. Brothers and sisters, uh, friends and newcomers, welcome to 2023. Welcome to Vision Sunday, a Sunday where we slow down uh, to kick off our year in many ways and an opportunity for us all and together to set our eyes, our minds and our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure when the last time was that you read the book of Esther was. It's one of those funny little books that's sort of in the back somewhere. But I've been reading it over summer, and I've got to say it's a fabulous read, and I want to challenge you to all to read it over the next month. Not instead of John, do it with John, Old Testament, New Testament reading. And I've been reminded as I've read Esther that it's one of those books that we actually can't remember too much about. We don't probably know the last time we read it. We certainly don't preach on it much. I'm not sure we've ever preached on it in my time here. In fact, I had a look at my bookshelf a couple of weeks ago for a commentary on Esther. I didn't own one. But it is a wonderful book of the Bible. And we're going to spend some time in Esther chapter 4 today. I want to give you a bit of background before we hear our Bible read in a moment. So the story in Esther comes about 500 years before Jesus was born. And it tells the story of a group of Jews living in a city called Susa, which is the capital of Persia. Uh, this is what's left of it today in modern-day Iran. Now, Persia at the time of Esther was the superpower of the day, having overthrown the Babylonian Empire that went before it. Uh, and Persia's land and influence was massive. Susa was the capital. So the green on the map behind me is Persia. Uh, and today it would cover Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Armenia and Georgia. It's a big empire, big place. And Susa and the king are smack bang in the middle. And as a minority group, the Jews living in Susa were viewed with suspicion. Uh, they sometimes faced threats to their very existence from people who were in positions in the empire to harm them. That's exactly what we find in the book of Esther. So in the story that we're about to hear read, there's just a few characters we need to get to know. Four, in fact. The first is King Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. And he's essentially a weak drunk, often under the effect of alcohol, often led by the loudest voice around him and drawn to young and attractive women. He's actually a self-indulgent pig. That's not just my opinion. That is the way that the story paints him. Then we have Mordecai, a Jew living in the citadel of Susa. That is, Mordecai is this Jewish man living in or around the king's temple. We learned that he has been exiled from Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. Now he's living under Xerxes, the king of Persia. And in our story, uh, Mordecai is the voice of God's purposes and plans. Then we meet Esther. This is Mordecai's cousin. She's an orphan. Her parents have died. Like Mordecai, she's also Jewish. But no one knows she's Jewish. Esther is not a shining light of godliness. In many ways, she's a compromised character, caught up in the culture, the trappings and the allure of the elite life that Persia offers. She's also incredibly attractive and King Xerxes finds her more appealing than any other woman in the whole empire 
So he makes her his queen. Our final character is Haman, one of the king's nobles. He was elevated by the king and before whom all the royal officials bow down. He's actually Mordecai's foil. He's opposite. So if Mordecai is godly and concerned for others, Haman is wicked and only concerned for himself. Now we're going to hear chapter 4 read. Here's what you need to know. Before this, uh, there's been, in chapter 3, there's been lots of drinking and lots of banquets and lots of decisions made at these banquets whilst doing a lot of drinking, which is never a good model for decision making. Uh, What we're going to find in chapter 3 is that Haman hates Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down before him. And then right at the end of chapter 3, we learn that Haman has hatched a plot to kill Mordecai. But more than that, so deep his hatred of Mordecai, his plot is to kill every Jewish person in the whole Persian Empire. And the weak, drunk, pig of a king Xerxes signs off on it all. This is chapter 4. Let's read from Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict had an order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hattach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hattach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather, all, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. 
when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you, Clara, friends. I told you it's a great story. Uh, And this morning is just three things from chapter four that I want to draw our attention to that I think are really helpful for us as we think about both individually and corporately uh, what 2023 is going to be for all of us under God. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is verse 11. Here's what we see. This is Esther's first response to Mordecai when he calls on her to help. She essentially says to Mordecai, her cousin, she says, Look, I know all the Jews are going to be exterminated. But if I go into the king's presence to beg for mercy, I might be killed as well. Of course, at one level, this is a self-serving, self-centered, self-preservatory response uh, from Esther. But before we get too judgy, what would you do? What would you say? You know, sometimes when we come to read the Bible, we've just got this assumption that the heroes and heroines of the stories are these clean, upright, moral characters, more at home in the temple than anywhere else. We sort of forget the rest of the Bible, actually. We sort of forget that Abraham was a disbeliever, Moses a murderer, David an adulterer, Rahab a prostitute, Paul a persecutor, Peter a fearful denier. Have no doubt that Esther in the first half of this book is one shady lady, much more Persian than Israelite. I mean, no one even knew she was Jewish. How is that possible? That means she didn't worship, she didn't adhere to food laws, she didn't keep the Sabbath, and she probably did bow down to her man in a way that Mordecai would not. That is just the first thing I want us to notice. We'll come back to it. Here's the second. It's what Mordecai says in response to Esther. It's verse 13 where Mordecai has heard Esther's words. He sends back this response. He says to her, Esther, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you you alone of all the Jews will escape. No, no. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now that is one blistering response. Firstly, Esther, you might be the queen. You may wear fine clothes and eat good food, but you will not escape this edict. Why? For the king's edict was irreversible. And you're a Jew. You see, there's nothing like a cold, hard dose of reality to shatter your lovely illusion of the future. But this reality that Mordecai brings to Esther continues, verse 14. He says, and if you stay silent, have no doubt, God will rescue his people. Don't worry about that. Deliverance will come. It'll just come from another place. And then he says, and who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He draws her life. He draws her good fortune her situation and story back into the larger story of God himself. Now, Mordecai at this point actually gives Esther a choice. He says to her, look, Esther, you need to know God will move. God will work. God will rescue. That's what God does. And you've got a choice here, Esther. You can be a passive victim in all of this and you'll perish along with your family. Or you can be an active participant in God's plans for his people and his world. I mean, Mordecai here is profoundly inspiring and... Esther changes. 
This is the third thing I want us to notice from chapter 4. Esther is a fundamentally different woman from here on and for the rest of the book of Esther. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews in the the city of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my tenants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, I just think these three things here are really important for us to see, slow down and consider for each of us, for Norwest, as we think about the year to come. Specifically, as we think about uh, what what it will look like for each of us to serve our God in the next 12 months. Now, here's the first. In this story, God chooses to do miraculous work through the most unlikely of people. Now, of course, we've already heard that that's sort of God's pattern in the Bible. Uh, He does that everywhere. But again, if you've forgotten, he'll do it in 500 years when a virgin will find herself about to give birth to the saviour of the world. Brothers and sisters, our God works through the weak, the compromised, the assimilated and the allured. He certainly does with Esther. She's completely assimilated into Persian culture. And yet, and the thing that we learn here, I think, is that God does not wait for perfect, religious, theologically trained, finished products of people to start to do his work through. In fact, God works in the strangest of people and in the strangest of ways. I was recently reading Romans 5, and I know you all know it, Uh, It's that famous section where Paul is describing why Jesus would die for people. And he says this, it's on the screen. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I've known this passage forever. But I saw something here that I'd never seen before. Because not once does Paul let us know that Jesus died for us while we're unworthy. Not twice does he do it in this little section. But three times, Paul says the exact same thing, just in different words. So verse 6, he says, when we were still powerless. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. Verse 10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Paul's point, God died for you, God loved you, and God made you his when you were powerless, whilst a sinner, and when you're his enemy. Now, three times. Why? Well, obviously... Because we're slow. Because we are all so prone to believing and thinking and feeling that God works in good people, that God calls righteous people, that God loves religious people. It's just not right. Our God works through the weak, the compromised, the assimilated and the allured. And believe it or not, he can work through you. And I know because I've pastored God's people for long enough and I've lived in this skin for long enough personally, that for many of us, if not all of us, deep down, we know we are weak and compromised, in many ways assimilated to the culture around us and allured by it, certainly. And if we're honest, in our most honest of moments, we wonder if God could ever work through a wretch like me or you. Brothers and sisters, 
it is where he does his best work. First thing I want us to see. Second is this. I think it's so helpful for us uh, as we look at 2023 and as a church and individually that we see the power of God in this story working behind all these human events. Okay, Because if you read chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 of Esther, you you finish and you're thinking, this is hopeless. This is bleak. God's people are in trouble. There's a disaster just waiting to fall. And yet, God's hand works mysteriously and wonderfully behind all the historical events that happen. But, and maybe you know this, you probably do. God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once. Not at all. In fact, there's only two books in the Bible where God is never mentioned, and Esther's one of them. And yet, did you notice how clearly Mordecai is aware of and single-minded in his devotion to God? He's aware of God. He knows God's character, and he knows God's promises. He knows that God will look after his people. And in Mordecai, we see one who's so committed to this God that he will worship him. He'll make his decisions in life based on him. He'll choose to break some laws of the land, not bow before Haman, chapter 3, 2, yet follow other laws of the land, not enter the palace in sackcloth, chapter 4, verse 2. Why? All because of his love for the Lord. And here is what I think will be very helpful to remember in the year before us. It is knowing that the power of God stands behind every human event, no matter how they appear. Because as we look at the world, in fact, as we even look at our own lives, almost all the time, we don't really know what God is doing. Now, I'm not sure if God's going to speak to you audibly in 2023 to explain what's happening in your life. My guess is he won't. And there will be times in the next year where you wonder, is God there? Is he too weak to act? Has he blocked his ears to your prayers for some unknown reason? And it is in those moments that you must remember that the silence of God is never the absence of God. You know, Mark 15, Jesus hanging on the cross cries out, you know this so well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all Jesus hears in response are the replies, sorry, all he hears in response are the questions of the crowd wondering who he's calling. Jesus hears nothing for as the song goes, the father turns his face away. But the silence of God is never the absence of God. God, the creator and redeemer, was holding all things in his hand, purposing his perfect will in the life and the death and the resurrection to come of his son. Now, here's the question for you and me. Will you believe that when things look messy in 2023, when you cannot hear nor feel God's good and perfect hand? Esther 4 shows us that you can know God is there. A final reflection, a final thing we learn from Esther as we turn our faces towards 2023. You see, under God's sovereign hand, uh, Esther finds herself in this remarkable position at a remarkable time for a remarkable moment. We see that God places her right where she is for such a time as this. Now, here's the final question I want you to consider today. Do you believe 
Do you believe that God has placed you exactly where you are for his purposes? Is it simply a quirk of circumstance that you're in the job you're in with the friends you have, with the neighbours you know? I reckon that we go through life most of the time feeling like it's a quirk of circumstance rather than the hand of a sovereign God. Now, just to be clear, I doubt in 2023 that God will call you to save a nation like he does Esther. I don't think that's what this is saying. But have no doubt that he will call you to ambassadorial duties to represent king and kingdom, to live for Jesus, to model him, speak of him. Brothers and sisters in the home and the marriage and the family, the workplace, the school class, the uni lecture, the job, the soccer team that you're in, do you think it's simply a quirk of fate that you're there? Or don't you believe that today, this day, God is at work rescuing his people just as much as in the reign of Xerxes? God is just as much about using his people to bring salvation to those who he's elected to eternal life. God will call all his people to himself. But have no doubt, just like Mordecai said to Esther, God will do his work with or without you. With or without me. But who knows? Maybe you're exactly where you are in your life for such a time as this. You know, when Jesus preaches that famous sermon in Matthew on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 4, 5, 6, uh, five, six 7, there's this line in the Sermon on the Mount that we all know, and I reckon we almost all miss here. We know it, but we miss here. So the line goes like this on the screen. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. You know it? You with me? Got it? Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Now we know this verse. Here's the thing. That's not how the verse goes. Okay, we hear it like that, but that is not what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus actually says, sorry, Jesus does not say, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say that. I mean, he could have said that. He is the light of the world. He says that in John, but not in Matthew. What he actually says is, you are the light of the world. As he talks to his followers. As he talks to you. I don't think we believe it. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. That is to a world in darkness, to a people stumbling around, not knowing up from down, the light of hope and forgiveness and grace, the light of Christ can be and will be seen in you as you live for Jesus. And brothers and sisters, for such a time like this, our God may well make his light shine through you to bring someone back to himself. Can you imagine, just for a moment, just for a moment, imagine having the enormous privilege, pleasure of leading someone who is stuck in transgression and sin, someone who has come to the end of themselves, someone who is drowning in self-justifying their life and goodness, of leading them back to their God in Christ. Imagine for a moment if God gave you that privilege in the next 12 months. 
Brothers and sisters, in 2023, do not assume you are merely meandering, what's the word? Meandering through life. God has placed you where he wants you and all for his perfect plans. And so friends, as we look towards another year of serving Jesus together here at Norwest, I think Esther shows us so much that God works through people who are weak and struggle and fail. Is that you? That's good. That's where God does his best work. So follow Jesus. Serve him. And ask God to keep making you into the image of his son. Secondly, this year, we will all feel the strain of life and the sting of sin. And we will want to hear and feel God's voice and comfort. But we may not. And it is then that together we must hang on even tighter to God's character and promises, knowing his silence is never his absence. And so as a church, we will remind each other of God's character and God's promises week in and week out here through our preaching, through our Q&C that normally comes after our preaching, through our community groups, through our ministry teams, through our kids ministry, youth ministry, knowing that every one of us is dead in the water when we start to forget God's word to us. And finally, as a church, we will continue to have absolutely no doubt not a flicker of doubt that God has placed us here in this stunning part of Sydney in Borkham Hills for such a time like this. That God has placed you in this church, in this part of Sydney, for such a time as this. We know that this year our God will use his church here to draw people back to himself. That is that you and me will be light in a dark world. Which is why our vision here at Norwest is that we long to see Jesus become king of every heart and every home as he calls people back to himself one by one by one. And so I, along with our ministry team and our leaders here, will lead this church to that end and to no other. You need to know that every decision we make here, every dollar we spend, every staff position and leadership position we appoint to is completely and totally driven by that vision. A vision of a gracious, courageous God of love calling a wavered people back to himself like he did with you and me. Will you join us in that mission this year? We're going to finish a bit differently today. I've asked Susie James to come up and to lead us in prayer about these things that we've seen from Esther 4. Uh, if you'd like to prepare yourselves to pray, Susie, thank you so much.